Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 112 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Martha Pindale about refreshing your midsummer garden. She is a horticulturalist instructor and executive director of the American Landscape Institute. The plant profile is on Blazing Star, and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events. This episode of Garden DC, we're joined by Martha Pindale. She is a horticulturalist, an instructor, and the executive director at the American Landscape Institute based in Moncton, Maryland. Welcome, Martha. Hi, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Kathy. This is very exciting. Well, I'm so happy to finally have you on. Uh, your your story is so fascinating, your family background and your horticultural experience and your journey. And I think this will be a great episode for those interested in horticultural careers, especially. Yeah, I hope so. And our overall topic is the summer garden refresh. And we were just talking about our long to-do list that we all have these days and in the garden as well, and what we can do during this super hot part of the summer approaching the dog days to give our garden a little uplift and maybe spare ourselves from doing too much in the garden at this time of year. Right, Martha? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. All right. Well, we like to start off here at Garden DC by asking, were you born with a green thumb and chlorophyll in your veins? And I think I know that answer, Martha. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the answer is definitely yes. Um, I uh, come from a long line of horticulturalists in my family, starting way back, uh, forgive me, I don't know the exact year, but there was a physician in Philadelphia in the 1700s by the name of Casper Wister. And he actually was a very, even though he was a physician, he was very involved with horticulture and Wisteria was actually named after him, which, because his last name was Wister, and I'm not really sure if I should even admit to that because we all hate Wisteria. Uh, I mean, as an invasive. Yes, it is. The the Asian one can be a bit invasive, yes. but it's still beautiful and people just go crazy over it. And if you yes. can contain it, even better. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, fast forward to more modern times. Um, my grandparents started a very small backyard nursery in Towson, Maryland in 1926. They had met in the uh, Philadelphia area. They both worked at Moon Nurseries, which I guess was in Morristown, New Jersey. That's where they met. They were both working at the nursery and uh, they ended up eloping and moving down to Towson and starting their little nursery there and starting a small family. And my grandfather, Andrew Simon, um, did landscaping in the area. And there's um, even some gardens now in Roland Park that I visited that he was a part of. For many years. Then they bought property out in northern Baltimore County and it was located on Blue Mount Road. So they named their new nursery Blue Mount Nurseries. And that was a uh, perennial growing operation, which was very unusual because back then people just, uh, growers were 
focus on woody plants mostly, not perennials. Then my father ended up taking over the nursery. His name is Richard Simon. He's still alive and well. He's just about to turn age 91. And he grew the nursery, uh, excuse the pun, for many years. He was instrumental in starting, helping to start the Perennial Plant Association because before that organization was formed, there was no professional organization just for perennial growers and perennial designers. He also introduced quite a few well-known perennials to the trade. Uh, Phlox paniculata, paniculata david came from Blue Mountain Nurseries, Aquilegia canadensis corbett, Heuchera vilosa autumn bride, Panicum virgatum cloud nine. I'm happy that many of these plants are still being sold and, and used uh, today. So yeah, I grew up with chlorophyll in my veins. <laughs> so you had to have some of that seep in. And when you mentioned the Hookera Autumn Bride, such an incredible plant, such a hard worker and a backbone plant that if you don't have it in your garden, I'm going to say run out now and get some. Yes, please. It is a workhorse. It can take dry shade. It can take uh, quite a bit of sun. Mm-hmm. It blooms late in the season. That's why it's called Autumn Bride. Uh, has white flowers. Uh, it's just wonderful. I was down at University of Virginia a month or so ago for my son's graduation, and it is planted all over the place on campus, which made me really happy. Lots of natives down there at UVA, if you're ever in the neighborhood. Lots of natives on campus. Wonderful to hear. And so for listeners, many in the area might be familiar with Bluemont, and it's still in operation, correct? No, unfortunately, Blue Mountain Nurseries was forced to close back. Uh, I've blocked it all out now. <laughs> there were a lot of zoning issues, so closed in like 2008. There were a lot of zoning issues in our area, uh, in our county. And when our large property got rezoned and downzoned, uh, we lost all the uh, value of the land. And that was the collateral for the bank. The bank wouldn't cho- use plants as a collateral. So they pulled all our loans. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, and it's such a tragedy that, you know, bank or loan officers are so short sighted or you know, don't see the big picture exactly, and the history of it alone, you know, shows the worth of it, but also the plant collection and the stock that you had. Yes. Yeah, so after the nursery closed, I worked for Emory Knoll Farms, which is in Northern Hartford County. They were the very first uh, nursery, I believe in the United States to focus solely on plants for the green roof industry. So I did a lot of propagating there And then after uh, two or three years there, I went out on my own doing uh, private uh, residential uh, landscaping and maintenance and design for uh, private clients. And then a few years after that, I don't know, it's all a blur, but uh, (laughs) I guess it was in 2017 that I was approached by the American Landscape Institute to um, help with that brand new scholarship program. And let's talk a little bit about the ALI and the scholarship program. Is that open to anybody to apply to or how does one apply or qualify? Okay, so... Uh, The American Landscape Institute, we call it ALI for short, and it's actually not an institute at all. It's a scholarship program. It's an earn and learn, like a work and study program. So yes, anybody could apply. Uh, We don't really have an age limit, but uh, part of the program is that you would be working full time for a landscape company, a nursery company, or uh, maybe a public garden. So you need to be hale and hearty and, and able to put in those kind of hours. And as we all know, in the green industry, it's, you know, it's physical. So that's one part of it. 
You also would need to be live somewhere in the Baltimore, D.C. area so that you could get to the Community College of Baltimore County at their Dundalk campus. Uh, you need to be able to get there one day a week to attend classes because the classes associated with our program are every Friday at CCBC Dundalk. And we there are two classes every semester. So there's a morning horticulture class and an afternoon class. And then the rest of the week, you know, Monday through Thursday, you are working for your employer, getting paid, getting on the job experience, you know, building your resume. And then on Fridays, when you go to CCBC and take these horticulture classes, you're learning all sorts of wonderful uh, horticultural knowledge, taking the Woody ID classes, the herbaceous plants class, that's what I teach, uh, introduction to sustainable horticulture class, soils and fertilizers, uh, there's a turf class. So it's a, quite a broad range of classes and you would be in school or in college for seven semesters every Friday and come out with a certificate in landscape installation, maintenance and design. And you would have earned 39 college credits and then you could go on and uh, go for your AA degree and even go on to a four-year degree if you wish. Fascinating. And and where is the funding for the ALI coming from? So um, it's a very interesting program. It's a very, very unique. So if any of you out there listening have questions, you know, we'll have my contact info at the end because people usually have a lot of questions. So the funding is, it is a scholarship program. So your employer, and we help you find a job with a landscape or a nursery company, that employer agrees to pay 80% of your tuition every semester. So you only pay 20% and your portion is really small. The students pay about $220 per semester. And the employer, if there are any uh, companies out there listening right now, your cost is about $880 per semester. Um, Some semesters are a little less. The interesting Another interesting aspect of this program is that for the student portion, that 220 that you pay every semester, we hold that money. We do not spend it. And when you graduate after seven semesters, you get a check from the American Landscape Institute for whatever you put in. So it's about $1,200. So you're graduating debt-free and with a check and with a certificate from the Community College of Baltimore County and 39 college credits. And so anybody, even if they're in Delaware, Virginia, not in Baltimore County, Maryland, if they can work there and get there, they can apply, correct? Yes and no. CCBC does have um, out-of-state rates, so the tuition would be higher if somebody was living in Delaware and commuting to the college every Friday. But I can explain all that, you know, if people have questions. So basically, it's We are somewhat limited to the Maryland area. They do make an exception for York County, Pennsylvania. That gets the in-state rate. And but most of our employers are in the Baltimore area, Mm -hmm. so around the uh, Baltimore Beltway mostly. We are always looking for more companies to participate. Now that we are in our fifth year, companies are sitting up and taking a little notice. I think in the beginning they, some of them were very skeptical and just not sure that the program was going to fly. And so I'm hoping that now that we have a good track record, we've graduated as of just this past May, a total of 55 students have graduated from the program. And we've had a total of 27 companies that have participated. Some are repeat participants that they sort of constantly are sponsoring a student and have a student in the program. 
uh, and some of them only have done it once, and I'm hoping, you know, that they'll come back and do it again. Fascinating. Well, I hope other states uh, replicate or participate in this program because it sounds like a wonderful way to bring in more people into the horticultural industry. And as you say, graduate debt-free and with a little bit ahead. That's incredible. Yeah, it's sort of unheard of. And yeah, we would really hope that this would catch on in other states. You know, every state has a professional landscape and nursery organization. Uh, For example, here in Maryland, we have the Maryland Nursery Landscape and Greenhouse Association. And those folks in all those different states, I hope some of them are listening and maybe they could go to their state organization and try to uh, replicate what we've done. And I'm happy to talk to anybody who's interested in doing that. Thank you, Martha. So generous of you. Now let's talk about what we need to do in the garden this summer. And the first thing I have on my list, and I don't know about you, Martha, is one of my favorite garden terms, which is deadheading. I just love that. I love saying I'm out, I'm going to go deadhead some flowers. Um, It has nothing to do with the Grateful Dead, of course. Exactly. Yes. So deadheading is really uh, one of the key ways to keep your garden flowers constantly blooming and also have your garden looking great. So usually when we're talking about deadheading, we're talking about herbaceous plants. So that would be your annuals and perennials. Uh, woody trees and shrubs um, don't really uh, require, I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but they don't need uh, that constant deadheading. And um, sometimes when I am explaining deadheading to my students, I remind them that often when a flower has quote unquote died, you know, it's wilted, it's brown and shriveled, it is not dead at all. There's actually very fascinating, magical, amazing things going on within that wilted quote unquote dead flower head. It's busy in there creating or, or ripening their seeds. So it's really not dead at all. Now, of course, your hybrids and your sterile flowers, I guess we could technically call them dead, but the flower, the spent blossoms are often, uh, while they're still attached to the plant, they're doing magical things in there, uh, getting their seeds growing and ripening and ready to um, fall to the ground or blow away or whatever. But If you really want constant flowers, it's best to remove those with a quick snip uh, with your pruners. I love to use very small kitchen scissors, something uh, sort of nimble and sharp, uh, long pointy scissors or clippers, not my big pruning felcos. Those are Mm -hmm. sort of too big for such a dainty task. And I just like to keep those spent flowers or quote unquote deadheads removed because then the plant Uh, whether it be a daisy or a petunia or a salvia, that plant can stop putting energy into seed production and can focus energy on new buds and new flowers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and good that you pointed out not to use your heavy pruners because after a while, of deadheading, you would get blisters, even wearing gloves, um, doing that much deadheading. I like to use like floral snips, like Corona makes a nice little light weight floral snip that you can just go through and snip very quickly through. And do you let your deadheaded flowers, I guess is the plural, (laughs) drop to the ground or do you gather them up and compost them or what do you do? It depends. Um, If I'm working for a client, I usually gather them and, you know, put them in my compost bucket as I go, just because I need everything to look perfect and tidy at all times. At my house, all bets are off. It's, hey, if I have a moment to deadhead, and I don't have a bucket with me, well, then 
fall, you know, they just fall to the ground. Um, so usually in, in the heat of the summer on a sunny day, they just shrivel up and, and you really don't even notice them. So I encourage you to not worry too much about tidiness and cleanliness because they're very harmless. Um, if you are deadheading something like a black-eyed Susan, you know, Ridbeckia, or maybe Echinaceas, and you don't want a million seedlings, then you might want to gather up as, as you go and, and into a bucket so that you're not um, allowing them to uh, fall to the ground and perhaps ripen. Because it is fascinating. Many flowers, even after you cut them off the plant, if they're far enough along in the fertilization process, they, the seed could very well ripen on the ground and the seed head could burst open. So it just depends on the stage. So, Yeah, we just did an episode of Garden DC on self-sowing plants or self-seeding plants, and, and that's a great point. And my other method of deadheading is to gather bouquets while they're still in a fresh stage. So that way you're continually getting flowers for indoor display while they're still, you know, at peak, but you're also deadheading at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. Cutting uh, flowers in general is almost always, and there are exceptions, but it will stimulate more flowers. And if we're trying to help our pollinators, then getting out there and deadheading is one of the best things that you can do because some plants, once they've just flowered and flowered, and now everything's sort of going to seed and quote unquote, full of deadheads, then there's nothing there for the pollinators to uh, feast on. So by deadheading, you're encouraging a new flush of blooms and uh, helping the pollinators with some more food for them. Also, this time of year, because we typically, and especially right now, experiencing a lot of heat, and maybe you haven't had rain, watering is really important. That will keep those perennials and annuals wanting or having enough energy to keep on flowering. You know, we're asking a lot of our beautiful flowering plants to keep on blooming constantly, but that's asking a whole lot. So I -hmm. always treat them kindly by giving them good, long, deep drinks of water and even some um, fertilizer, uh, maybe every other week, some liquid fertilizer. I love the seaweed emulsions, anything um, with seaweed uh, in it, or I love Monty's, Monty's, is that the full name? Just Monty's fertilizer. It's a concentrate, seaweed concentrate, and you have to dilute it like a tablespoon into a watering can or whatever. But that's, I would take a bath in Monty's if I could. <laughs> it brings stuff back from the dead. So wow, um, it's, it's good stuff. Yeah, I've been using Neptunes, which is a similar similar brand, but it, that's a little bit of a fishy smell for me to bathe in myself. <laughs> yeah, and Monty's isn't um, as stinky. And um, yeah, highly recommend it, but anything like that. And I'm not going to knock miracle Grow. I have to admit, I, I find that quite handy. You know, they, they come now in these bottles. They kind of look like bottles of Sprite and you could just screw them right onto your Hosen spray or a special miracle Grow thing. Sometimes I will use that with clients just because I'm in a super hurry and they're so convenient. But uh, as a rule, I really like to a support the little guy, go organic and use seaweed and fish emulsions. And I'm glad you mentioned when we were talking about deadheading that it helps the pollinators to have fresh flowers all the time, because I always feel so guilty when I am cutting like zinnias or cosmos right out from under the bees and butterflies. And they're like, (laughs) and you're like, sorry, I'm trying to grab these at the same time as they're trying to still feed on them. Yeah, exactly. Yes. You're doing the pollinators a big favor by deadheading as much as possible. And then also going back to the watering issue, um, please, when you're watering, do it like you mean it. 
like take your time, really soak that ground. Don't direct your spray nozzle or your water. Well, spray nozzles are awful. Those are high pressure nozzles that don't belong in the garden. You can wash your car with them, but don't use them for watering. Get a nice soaker type nozzle that distributes the water and don't direct that water right at the plant. You want to think, you want to direct the water where the roots are. So that's around the plant in a circle, not boom, right at the stem. I see people and Mm -hmm. landscapers, especially, I see them standing in front of trees, aiming the water right at the trunk of the tree. Well, that's not where the roots are, people. We call it the drip zone. (laughs) That's where the uh, roots are. So draw a, a circle sort of around wherever the leaves and on a shrub or a tree, that's where you need to be directing your water, not at the trunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for those of us who are impatient or in a rush like myself and want to do just a quick water and then run and get out of the heat, that maybe it's a good idea to do that quick watering and then come back into a second uh after that first one has sunken in and then that second one will actually be what helps the plant. Right. So sometimes I'll, I'll do another chore. I'll do a quick watering, do another chore, like, you know, harvesting tomatoes or something, and then come back and do a second watering. Cause I know that one will be the one that actually takes. And that that's one way to cure my, I have to water quickly. Yes, absolutely. I think um, multiple applications, you know, two, three, even four, but in small amounts, it allows the soil to, or the water to seep into the soil and get sort of ready to receive more water. So, um, and if you're lucky enough to get a sudden uh, thunderstorm, usually those thunderstorms don't provide a lot of water because they come down so fast and furiously and, and often just wash away. But that's the time to get out there right after a thunderstorm and do some really good watering because at least the mulch is now sort of moistened and the soil top layer of soil is moist and sort of ready to receive the water from your hose. Um, Mm -hmm. It is refreshing. I mean, um, I'm sorry, frustrating how mulch, uh, even though yes, it retains moisture and helps shield the earth and keeps the temperature more moderate. uh, Sometimes when it's so hot and dry, water just bounces, sort of bounces right off the mulch, which is, um, frustrating. So that's why I like to water right after a rainstorm. Yeah. And there's always that um, trend that we talk about in gardening that if you don't water the morning that a rainstorm is predicted and you're saying, well, I'll just wait for the rainstorm to come right. I don't need to water today. That guarantees that you will be missed by that storm. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh yeah. That's a <laughs> definite rule of gardening. Oh, the other thing is if you are a big time container gardener and you have your hanging baskets and all your pots all around, a summer rainstorm is not enough to let you skip a day of watering. It just isn't enough water to get down into the pots and into the um, root ball, especially because this time of year, most people's pots are overflowing with foliage and flowers and the water from a rainstorm is just going to just bounce right off technically and not even get to the soil. So it drives me bananas when people say, oh, it rained last night. At least I don't have to water all my pots today. And when it's 95 degrees plus, I'm sorry, sometimes (laughs) you need to water twice a day. There's no free lunch Mm -hmm. just from a passing storm. You have to water those pots. Yeah. And especially if it's under the eaves or overhang or under trees at all, sometimes 
uh, under my oak trees, even though it's been a good thunderstorm, it's perfectly dry under there. Yep. It's, that's why it's called dry shade. Yeah. And just, you know, stick your finger in the pot and you will find out very quickly how bone dry it is. Or in the garden, have a little trowel and do a quick little dig and you will be shocked how maybe the top eighth of an inch or quarter inch is moist, but the rest of it could be powder dry. So it's um, serious business, this watering. And as I said, if you're going to go out there and water, do it like you mean it. Uh, another way to refresh the garden is cutting some annuals or perennials back mm-hmm. quite hard, meaning cut them back halfway or even more. I uh, This is the time of year where I cut all my petunias back quite a bit, at least halfway back, if not more. It's tragic. You know, it makes them look terrible because not a flower remains, but you're really helping them to stay more compact and bushy and flush out again. And because we have such long falls here, your annuals really need to need some, or many of the annuals need a haircut like that so that they can still look fabulous into the fall. And that's the only way I can get petunias to look good is if I do at least one hard haircut in the, in the midsummer. But of course, when you're doing that, it's a smidge cruel, especially in hot weather. So sometimes I'll water deeply the night before, make sure those plants are all really hydrated. And if I can't do that, then I absolutely water uh, deeply as soon as I've done it. I'm like apologizing to the plants. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I cut you back halfway, but here's some water to make up for it. And then that is also when I break out the uh, fertilizer, the fish emulsion or whatever, after the, after that plant is fully hydrated, then maybe that same day or the next day, I'll be sure to apply some liquid fertilizer to give it, um, give it a real boost because you're at, again, you're asking a lot of these plants, Mm -hmm. you're asking them in the middle of the dog days of summer to keep on blooming, or you're asking them to, you know, endure a hard haircut and then flush out again for you. Well, if you're going to ask that of them, then provide water and provide food. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that's a good time to do it is right before you go on vacation um, is to do that really hard cutback. Um, that way they're not as thirsty. You know, you're, you're saying, of course, that you're going to give them a really good drink maybe before and after that hard cutback. But then while you're gone, they don't need as watering so much. They're still going to need, you know, some watering. Yeah. When you reduce the top growth of any plant, it does decrease a little bit of the water demand. But, but you know, be careful if you're going on vacation. Make sure you have arrangements that somebody is watering for you. Mm-hmm. Good point. Even with drip irrigation, you just can't leave it and go because things get plugged up, you know, things stop working, and then you come back to a bunch of dead plants. Yes, absolutely. And also, if you are going to have a neighbor or a friend water your pots, even though they may uh, take offense that uh, maybe they think you're insulting their intelligence, but really check to make sure they understand what true watering is. You know, again, just because it rained last night doesn't mean they don't have to run over to your house and water the next day. Make sure they understand just how thirsty these plants are, especially in these high, temp- high, high temperatures. Yeah. And many perennials respond to being cut back hard. Uh, daylilies, the repeat bloomers like Hemerocallis stella dioro, I cut that back um, to the ground this time of year and uh, it will re-flush out and, and re-flower for me like crazy. Uh, the downside to that is it does leave some pretty big holes in the garden. If you have a lot of them, you know, it's not very attractive, uh, but uh, those daylilies are really tough. Hmm. 
And you're talking about cutting the foliage yes. back, not mm -hmm. just the, not just the pulling the flower right. stalks. Right. Once um, these repeat blooming daylilies have sort of they're taking a rest and you just don't see any new flower buds. You can go out there and either cut the, the whole plant to the ground or if you don't want to be that drastic, uh, cut it back at least halfway try to get rid of all the old flower stalks. And that's a chore. That's why I cut it down to the ground because mm -hmm. it's just so much faster than having to also remove all the old flower stalks. And then I follow it up with lots and lots of water and some, you know, fish emulsion or some sort of fertilizer. Yeah. I kind of like pulling the old flower stalks uh, off of the daylilies. Yeah. Once, once they're dry enough that you can literally just tug by hand easily yes. and pull them out when they're a little green then it's a pain then you have to go and cut them so that does bring up floppy plants because this is the time of year july august that a lot of the perennials are starting to splay open and fall yes. over i know i'm dealing with penstemon i think it's dark towers yes. beautiful plant full sun but still wants to be floppy yes yeah so this is where staking comes in and staking uh is a little bit time consuming and laborious, but it's so worth it. And the, one of the keys to staking is don't wait until the plant has fallen over and is on the ground. You really need to be proactive with your staking and stake when flowers or seed heads are starting to form because they are going to um, be heavy and they're gonna end up on the ground after a rainstorm. So do your staking um, as soon as you see some height and some flower heads um, uh, starting to be produced. And I love to use uh, the narrow bamboo stakes. I find that they sort of blend into the garden pretty well. Either the uh, green ones, they're dyed green or just the natural brown. And then I always have twine with me in my pocket. So I'm just using twine to either tie individual stalks to the stake or I'll surround, like for example, you were talking about penstemon dark towers. I would surround that plant with three or maybe four bamboo stakes hmm. and then um, sort of start uh, a webbing almost of the twine, you know, wrapping some twine around in a circle. And if, uh, usually one level will do it, but sometimes I'll have to do two. Um, if you are, if our listeners are unfamiliar with staking and uh, luckily there's YouTube out there with plenty of tutorials, there are also plenty of plant supports that you can buy. So if you just go to like Gardener Supply website or your local garden center and ask to see what types of plant supports there are, you can get some that save you some time. I, I'm not sure if this is their official name, but I call them half rounds. They're metal. And they're not a full circle. They're like a, a semicircle. So they just have two little legs and a, a semicircle. And then you can almost, what's the word I want? Push the plant back and prop it up with these half rounds. And then if you can make it a full round, if you have two of them, you can put one in the front and one in the back and you can circle the plant. Peony rings, everyone's familiar with those with their peonies, but you can use those with perennials. They're great, but you have to put them out early before the perennial has shot up because you want it to shoot up through that little grid, metal grid system that the peony rings provide. So there's lots of different plant supports out there and they're a great investment because if you bring them in every year, you know, after frost and put them in a garage or wherever, they'll, they'll, you can reuse them and reuse them. And the bamboo stakes, you know, those would be for a few seasons, not forever, usually. Yeah, not forever, usually, but um, they'll last quite a while, especially mm -hmm. if you can keep them dry over the winter. I like to use, like, the green plastic-coated rebar 
Yep. Um, those kind of narrow stakes because they're pretty strong. I also, and I have to say, we just got done with our Maryland primary elections and all those political signs mm. with those metal braces at the ah. bottom, you just discard the sign, but I keep those little metal brackets and use those sometimes around ornamental grasses and other things. Oh, that's a great idea. Oh, and the other trick I like to use with bamboo stakes are what I call the crisscross trick where I'll just take, this is especially good for plants that are flopping over onto your uh, lawn and you don't want want them to kill the grass. But I, I do this for all heights. You just take one bamboo stake and shove it into the ground on an angle in front of the plant and then take another one and cross it in front of it. Like you're creating an X or a crisscross. It, it makes, it props up the plant. You don't have to whip out any, you don't have any twine on you. That's fine. Doesn't need twine. And I don't know if you all can visualize what I'm trying to explain, but mm-hmm. just little, making little crisscrosses, either small ones for your low growing floppy plants or even tall uh, crisscrosses for the taller plants. So that's a real speedy way of staking. Yeah, I, I do that too. And I think sometimes I'll find hoops of bamboo that I can kind of shove in and, and make kind of a hoop in front of it as well, mm-hmm. just to make a quick support. And I was going to comment on the garden twine. Are you using the dark green or just the raw? I use both, either jute, mm-hmm. J-U-T-E, jute twine or, or the green. Sometimes the green is so skinny that it, yep. uh, it will could break mid-season. And then I've had the horrible experience and it's been happening a lot lately where the rabbits for no good reason chew my twine and so all of my staking you know my elaborate webbing and my you know with my twine is for naught and that's really annoying so I do use rabbit repellent um you know sprays Irish spring soap get a couple of bars of that and a cheese grater and I walk around the garden and just grate my bar of soap all around because it's stinky to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a baby bunny, and I, that's what I was going to ask. I find the squirrels love like the raw, not the green, but like the the regular jute twine. They love chewing through that, and so I've switched to dental floss. You know, so like just the thick, cheap dollar store dental floss that you know is too thick for really real flossing but for tying up some things that aren't delicate, you know, of course you don't want to do some vines that it would cut through with the floss. That's a great idea. Thank you for that. See gardening, you're always learning something. Yeah. I mean, it it blends in pretty well. You could also of course use like fishing line or that, that type of thing, but it has to be cut um, to take it off. And then of course you're adding plastic. Yeah. Fishing line I find is too taut. It's it's Mm -hmm. a little bit, funky to use but exactly yep and if you got the minty floss you got a little minty yeah scent there that might repel light. some deer <laughs> might help a little bit or cinnamon you know isn't there a cinnamon floss mm-hmm. there's a cinnamon one that's true i was gonna say unless a squirrel develops a taste for cinnamon and likes to chew on it but hopefully right. not and so our next step for a summer garden refresh i guess is to walk around and see where there might be there those holes in the garden or places that need addition or subtraction Absolutely. That's an ongoing process, isn't it? And making good notes, you know, if if suddenly you're walking around and you just don't see any flowers at all, that means that you make a note that, okay, this time of the year, there's just nothing happening. So 
maybe drive around, look at your neighbors or go to other wonderful gardens, see what they have that is blooming and that you like, obviously, make sure you go out and purchase some of that. You may not want to do it right now, you know, in the heat, but in the fall, you could make put you know make a list so that you're ready for fall shopping. Mm-hmm. Actually, I do recommend going shopping now because a you got the garden center to yourself, <laughs> pretty much, and b it's a great sale time. So if you're thinking about you know I want to put a hydrangea here in this spot, they might have some good sales going, and you just have to be the person to babysit this plant. Maybe not plant it right away, but put it in a shady spot make sure it it stays well watered until you're ready to plant it. Yeah, absolutely. It is a great time for bargain shopping. And even plants that look like they're almost dead, you bring them home, put them in a bucket of water. Uh, Don't leave them in there too long. You know, they're not aquatic plants, but, uh, you know, maybe an hour and you'd be amazed at how plants can can come back. And of course, if you do that and it's a flowering plant, go ahead and cut off all those flowers cut the plant down sort of to the basal foliage so that it isn't putting all its energy into flowering. You know, right now you want that plant to be putting all its energy into new roots and getting established and you can have nice flowers next year. That's so tough, Martha. (laughs) You're like, I want to enjoy those few flowers that are on this new plant that I just bought. Yes, that is true. That's true. But yeah, sometimes you have to be tough, uh, tough love on your plants. And so what do you use for mulching? Do you do a top dressing in the summertime at this time of year? Kind of what you've done in the spring is starting to, I would call it melt away or kind of has disappeared. Um, or do you wait for the fall? Yeah. If I see any kind of bare ground, I, I like to always have some mulch around, you know, um, and I've gotten to the point where I carry a bag. I make sure I have a bag of mulch nearby when I'm doing weeding. Because just keep in mind, folks, that every time you weed and you pull plants out of the ground, you're disturbing soil and you're bringing weed seeds that have been um, sleeping, you know, laying dormant in the soil. Once you bring them up to the surface, it's party time for them. They're going to start germinating like crazy. So if you can immediately, you know, that very same day, put down some mulch that you will really help with the war on weeds. And um, when I weed, I really like to use a tool at all times, either a knife or a hook knife or even a little trowel or something so that I'm sort of prying that weed out or cutting it out, um, depending on what type of weed is. And I I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to disturb um, the least amount of soil or cause the least amount of soil disturbance because people who are really aggressive weeders and are yanking and pulling and their soil flying... Uh, and you're exposing all this soil, remember that's just gajillion weed seeds that are happy that you have done that for them so that they can now germinate. So I try to disturb the soil as little as possible, and I also try to cover it up immediately with fresh mulch. Even though it doesn't match the rest of the bed, Mm -hmm. I don't care. Uh, My goal is to keep the weeds down. Yeah, and after a few days, it kind of blends in any case Absolutely. as it ages. Yeah. And are you using leaf mold or shredded pine fines, or what are you using? I use all of the above. It depends on what the client, if my client already has a certain type of mulch. Uh, at home, I just use hardwood mulch. Yeah, but I, I even leaf grow is a good mulch. Um, not if you have a ton of weed pressure. If you have a lot, a lot, a lot of weeds and weeds that are going to seed, leaf grow isn't quite bulky enough, I would go with hardwood mulch. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, the and the other thing to remember about weeding, folks, is that even if it's the dog days of summer, you just don't want to work out in the heat. It, at the very least, go out once a day or every other day or what have you, and cut off the seed heads of your weeds. Uh, it's one thing to have weeds, but it's a very another thing to have weeds that are going to seed. Because anytime you allow your weeds to go to seed, you are just perpetuating that problem. So uh, take a trash can out with you and just off with their heads. Even if, again, you don't have the time, the energy, uh, or the heat tolerance to do the actual weeding. Mm-hmm. And yeah, once you're talking about weeding in, in the heat, maybe we can give some uh, tips for gardening out in the heat. So you're still having to go out to clients at the, in this heat. doesn't matter if it's 99 degrees and 100% right. humidity. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you take care of yourself and, and how do you... Um, take precautions? Do you go out just early in the morning and late in the evening? Yeah, I try to get out uh, to clients as early as I can. I, um, a lot of it's mental. Like I just tell myself, okay, I'm not a roofer. I'm not an asphalt person. I'm just a gardener. As long as I don't do, you know, running around like a crazy person, you know, slow and steady. I wear a hat. I wear long sleeves, uh, anything to keep the sun off of me. Uh, a nice wet cloth around my neck, uh, frequent water breaks. I hydrate really all the time. Like as soon as I get home in the evening, I'm pounding water. I pound water the moment I wake up, like just try to never, ever let my hydration go. I don't like to drink sugary, you know, the sports drinks. I like V8. I find I usually have a V8 sort of in the middle of the day. I mean, middle of the morning is my little snack. Somebody told me about using pink Himalayan sea salt Hmm. in your water. And so I have started doing that. And I just put, I don't know, half a teaspoon in a big, big bottle of water. And it doesn't taste salty at all. Or if it does taste salty, then you're using too much. So just a little bit of that. But apparently it has a lot of electrolytes in it. Eating a lot of fruit. And just remember, gardening, you know, can be done as long as you're not going full speed ahead the way you might do on a nice spring day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say pace yourself and stick to the shade as much as possible. That also helps. But I I love that you mentioned the neck cloth because I have one of those that you buy at like a drugstore or a hardware store, those little ring out neck cloths that you can just stick in the freezer for five minutes and it feels so good. And remember your pulse points. Like if you could get, you know, what are those igloo ice packs that you put in your lunchbox, you know, have a couple of those, have a lunchbox with you outside in the shade and put those ice packs on your wrists, behind your ears. Sometimes I'll shove one behind my shirt, you know, like on my back. And then this is hilarious, but I keep my flip-flops in a plastic bag and I put them in my lunch cooler. My lunch cooler is huge. It's a big igloo thing with lots of ice Mm -hmm. packs. And then when I'm ready to drive home, I get out of my icky work shoes and put on ice cold flip-flops for the drive home. (laughs) And it's wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say that if your feet are are cool. And I've known people who have worked in tropical climates that they just do like a water, an ice bath for their feet while they're sitting at their desk. So they look totally professional, you know, from the waist up. up. (laughs) But if you could see below the desk, you would see that they're in a pan of ice water with their feet cooling them. And I'm like, oh, that's how you're doing it. (laughs) It's amazing what cool feet, yeah, can do to cool off your whole body. So yeah, so just go easy on yourself and and be aware of the danger because it is um, 
you know, it's hot out there. Mm-hmm. And I guess our last thing for concern for the gardener themselves would be mosquitoes and ticks and that sort of thing. Do you use any repellent? I, I do. I use um, the heavy duty stuff because I just feel like I don't want to get Lyme disease. I'm terrified of getting Lyme disease, so I don't mind breaking out the chemicals for that. And one home remedy I swear by, I did it last night actually, is to find some weeds in your garden. It's called plantain, broadleaf plantain. Most people have it and crush it up. Mm -hmm. Like you can chew on it and the the saliva in your mouth. What's that word? Not, you know, when you... It's like mucilage. Yeah, you want to chew it all up and then you spit Mm -hmm. it out. It's not very fancy, but spit it out in a little cup or something. And then you can smear that on your rash or your insect bite, your bee sting, your poison ivy. And boy, it really works. So um, just try, make sure your plantain isn't from a lawn or an area that's been sprayed. But I think broadleaf plantain is a really good home remedy. Yeah, and it's great to keep a few of those plants. Don't weed them totally out because you never know when you're going to get a bee sting or something else out in the garden. And and you could do that quick little poultice with the plantain leaf for you. Uh, Any final thoughts on a summer garden refresh, Martha? I think just keep in mind that you know, if you want your garden to look great, you do have to reward it, you know, with water and some liquid fertilizer. Yeah, keep that in mind and, and your garden should keep on trucking even in the top, tough times. Well, thank you, Martha. And how can listeners get in touch with you to find out more about the uh, scholarship program or your classes at CCBC? Um, so the best email address for me is Martha at American Landscape Institute. Dot com. I know that's long. Uh, Martha at American Institute, uh, American Landscape Institute.com. And if anyone is interested in just taking a class uh, in horticulture this fall, we have wonderful lineup of classes at CCBC Dundalk and the Hunt Valley campus. We have a basic landscape graphics, soils and fertilizers class, turf, Oh, there's a green roof and green wall class. So if you email me, I can send you the full lineup of classes. We have day classes, night classes, and uh, that's for folks who just want to get started or uh, and not ready maybe to commit to this full program. Wonderful. Thank you again, Martha. This has been, I don't want to use the word refreshing, but, <laughs> but definitely educational and I think uh, making me feel a little bit better about the, getting over this summer hump time. Great. Well, thank you so much uh, for inviting me and I'm hoping to keep in touch and hope people will reach out if they want to take uh, some horticulture classes or learn about the ALI program. Liatris plant profile. Blazing star, Liatris spicata, is a wildflower that is native to the eastern United States. It is also commonly known as gay feather It is hardy to USDA zones 3 to 9. It has a long blooming period from summer into early fall. The straight species has an upright wand of bright purple flowers. There are also cultivars that bloom in shades of pink and white. Blazing Star is a terrific pollinator plant and in the fall birds eat the seeds. It is drought tolerant and deer resistant. Blazing Star is low care. It needs to be planted in full sun and good draining soil for best performance. If placed in part sun, 
it can be floppy and need staking. If subjected to too wet soils, it can rot. The corms, sometimes referred to as bulbs, are widely available by mail order or at your local garden center in the springtime. They can be planted right away for flowers that summer. If you start them from seed, it may take a few years before you see your first flowers. You can also purchase them as started plants in pots. Though it's mostly known as an open meadow plant, it does equally as well growing in the ground as in containers. Blazing Star, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, it's been a hot one without much rain. So I spent it mostly watering with a little bit of weeding. One bright spot over at the community garden plot is that the Zinnia Queenie Lemon Peach is finally blooming. And I was able to rescue some self-sown plants from the pathways around my garden, such as the holy basil and last year's burgundy celosias, and move them back into the bed. Over at my home garden, I would say the star this week is the Invincible Wee White Hydrangea Arborescence. That is just pumping out flowers and looking beautiful. It's a, it's a dwarf version of Annabelle, and I highly recommend it for small space and urban gardens. I want to also pause and give a thank you to our latest listener supporter, Alice Longman. Thank you for your support. And let people know that the July 2022 issue of Washington Gardener has just been sent out to all subscribers. The cover story is on zinnias. We also have an in-depth story on growing tomatillos, um, attracting morning doves to your garden, and answering the question I've been asked several times over the summer is, will my pollinator garden attract ticks? I know that is a big question for a lot of people who are concerned about Lyme disease in the mid-Atlantic. And then there's a fascinating story on how leaf mold compost benefits urban gardens in particular. Um, that's based on some new research and I thought that was really important to share. We do a visit to the well at Oxen Run in Washington DC and we introduce you to one of the co-owners of the Roaming Stone tool sharpening business. In the local gardening world, some upcoming events include uh, a garlic festival that we are co-hosting at the Tacoma Park Farmers Market on Sunday, July 24th from 10 a.m. to 2. You'll find us in a booth right smack in the middle of that market. The Kenilworth Annual Lotus and Water Lily Festival is continuing through July 31st. There's also a local sunflower festival that you might want to attend and that's put on by the Sunflowers of Lisbon in Woodbine, Maryland, and it's easy to find their website. It's sunflowersoflisbon.wordpress.com. And that has a lot of offerings, local artists, hayrides, kids activities, food vendors, that sort of thing. But if you're into more simple interaction with sunflowers, I recommend going out to the McKees, Beshers, Wildlife Management Area, 
and that's along the Potomac River in Maryland. And you will definitely need to wear sturdy shoes and insect spray and be prepared for some rough conditions. But bring your camera, bring an umbrella for the sun and the heat, uh, but enjoy yourself. Also happening coming up is our Garden Book Club Summer Edition. We are going to be discussing Garden Variety by Christy Wilhelmy. And that is on Thursday, August 25th at 6.30 p.m. via Zoom. And we have a link to sign up for that from our blog and in the magazine. And that is free and open to anybody who wants to discuss the book with us. And then also save the date for our garden photo show opening at Meadowlark Gardens uh, in Vienna, Virginia. That is Sunday, September 4th at 12.30 p.m. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.